3: <laughs> this one
4: was good. Welcome to a brand new season of Growing Up with Galdem, inspired by our book I Will Not Be Erased: Our Stories About Growing Up as People of Colour. My name is Nyala Arboyne and I'm the Life Editor at Galdem, and I'm Natty Kasimvala, former Editor and long-time contributor at Galdem.
2: Galdem is an award-winning media company committed to sharing the perspectives of people of colour from marginalised genders. Each week, we invite a guest to respond to old diary entries, letters or text messages from their younger selves. The point is to nurture important discussions about growing up.
4: You can find Growing Up With Gaudem on Apple Podcasts, the Acast app, Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts. Toby Adebayo is an anti-disciplinary artist, community organiser, director, doula, facilitator, Afro hair specialist, performer spiritual worker, singer, writer, and parent. They navigate various creative and communal spheres. Toby's practice primarily focuses on communing with the other via movement, sound, visual, and written formats. Their works centre the depths and nuances of disability, black sexuality, desire, healing, queer love, science, and Yoruba traditions. Toby is also one third of Waste Women, a transcontinental collective of non binary diasporic artists creating multimedia work about and for their community. And their self titled debut EP is out now on all streaming platforms. Hi, Toby. It's great to have you on the
2: show today.
4: How are you doing?
3: I'm okay. I'm all right. Thanks for having me. It's nice to be here.
2: It's lovely to have you. First off, I wanted to ask you. What does it mean to be an anti-disciplinary artist? Ah, Great (laughs) question.
3: (laughs) For me, it just means not necessarily restricting myself to any specific discipline and allowing my creativity to kind of move however it needs to, depending on the work I'm doing. Yeah, especially because I do a lot. So it felt weird to try and be, like, um, a multidisciplinary artist when I already feel quite uncomfortable with the idea of disciplines in the first place. There's something a little, like, colonial about it that just is a bit uncomfortable.
4: <laughs> yeah. Interesting. So that's my... Honestly, I saw it in your bio and I was like, hmm, that's a very interesting term. And I thought you might say something about, I guess, like, the idea of disciplines versus, you know, like practices or expressions of yourself so would you say that you don't consider the the, I guess the strands of your life to be
3: disciplines? No I don't know if I'd say that they're disciplines I think I'm more interested in practices like the active version of this where it's something that I am trying to create as I go along in collaboration with other people and like honoring the reality of the fact that I'm not in this by myself you know like I don't know. I guess also because I'm a bit, I don't know what the word is. Is it anti establishment? <laughs> anti establishment. Yeah, I think a little, yeah, bit, a, little bit, a little bit of that is a little bit of me. So I do try and reflect that in the ways that I use language in my work. And I try to use it as a kind of a thinking point for other people when they come in
4: contact with my work as well. So I think that's great. And one of the many practices that you are participating in is most recently you've also birthed your first baby as a doula which I would love to hear more about in terms of like your journey into that space and what that first experience was like.
3: Yeah I'll just start by saying how much of an honour and a pleasure and a blessing it is to be able to support black women in this way as a doula. The main reason I kind of got into the work is because I had quite a traumatic birth experience myself. I studied biomedical science, so I've always been quite interested in kind of physiology and biology. But now being a doula, I get to kind of do that from a more holistic perspective where I'm supporting the parents and doing it in a way that's not necessarily kind of adhering to this medical industry's way of holding space of care for black women which is (laughs) it's not really good is it it's not great it's very violent the experiences of black women in the maternal health industry I can speak for here in the UK is really bad so it's really beautiful to be able to like hold space for this from a spiritual and scientific but more holistic perspective and the first official doula job I had was beautiful. Uh, it was really amazing to just watch life on a life and be present for it being kind of, yeah, <laughs> coming earthside in a way. Yeah, it was beautiful. I'm here for just holding that space for women and also prioritizing Black queer women, queer people and disabled people in my practice because also there's the the specificity of the space that they need in terms of access, not necessarily being something that's readily available. And I try to work from kind of a community pricing perspective so that it makes my service more accessible to as many people as possible. Yes, really beautiful being a doula. I'm training as a death doula and a birth doula, so I get to see it from lots of different perspectives and I get to kind of hold space for experiences of both end of life and beginning of life. And that cycle. So, yeah, it's, it's pretty cool. It's pretty amazing. I'm enjoying it a lot.
2: Yeah, I didn't know about death dealers.
3: They're definitely not as common or as famous as birth dealers. I think they also came off of the back of the word anyway. Like, kind of the death dealer kind of came off of the back of birth dealers in the first place. But essentially, it's somebody who supports people through their end of life transitioning and. I think death is something that we just don't spend enough time holding space for, talking about, or engaging in what it actually means. Yeah, including the grief, including the preparation, including the kind of holding the loss and also holding the, the legacy of the person's life in a way.
4: Yeah, very dynamic work, I think. I think that's, yeah, that's incredible. And I might be wrong in thinking this, but every time I'd kind of come into contact with the idea of a doula, it was from more of an American perspective, whereas here we kind of see more, like, official midwives, which they don't have over there, but fewer, I guess, doulas. So I guess I was interested to hear more about, like, even how you... Is it something that is becoming more common, would you say? is Are there kind of structures in place to help you guys kind of, like, navigate the spaces, or is it kind of, like freeform as it starts at the moment? Yeah, I
3: mean, I had my daughter almost eight years ago now, and there were definitely doulas around then. It's just, it felt like it was something that was a little bit more exclusive to, you know, white middle-class women who had the money to just pay (laughs) whatever amount for this work. But In the last five years, I would say in terms of information, because I've been researching since then, in terms of information, in terms of people putting themselves more out there, there are a lot more black doulas. In the UK, I trained with a doula agency company organization called Abuela Doulas, which is headed by a wonderful human being called Mars Lord, who is essentially just creating an ever-growing network of black doulas around the UK. So there are resources out there and there are more black doulas kind of putting themselves online, putting their work online and just being like, we're here if you need us. I wouldn't say I'm one of the doulas with a big online presence because I'm definitely still just wanting to be kind of word of mouth and be working for the community. Like one black queer person says, oh, you're pregnant. There's this black queer person who can (laughs) support you. Or, oh, you're disabled. There's this black queer person who holds space for this. Yeah, but there are definitely a lot more Black dealers now than there ever have been in the UK. Like, you know, bringing their voice to the forefront, especially when we think about the ways that the Black maternal health crisis is a little bit more in the media. I think it's kind of making people more confident to be like, hey, I'm around if you need my support, if you need me to you know, be with you, if you need me to advocate for you on your maternal journey. So yeah, it's a growing network and I'm really, really glad to see it. Amazing.
2: Yeah, I feel like I don't know many black people who have had babies that haven't had some kind of trauma in the medical field, which is just really sad and something, yeah, we all kind of know. Do you ever struggle as a doula within those spaces? Is there any conflict between the medical professional side and doulas? Or does it work in harmony now?
3: (laughs) (laughs) I think it's very subjective. It's very subjective, you know, because you could be in a birth where you're dealing with somebody who has internalised kind of isms that they haven't necessarily addressed and they've brought that into the space with them. And they're not even aware of it. So they're not aware that they're bringing random microaggressions into a space that's supposed to be sacred and supposed to be holding space for somebody to just listen to their body and do what it does. So... It's a kind of towing the line. And also as a doula, you have to kind of be the person who absorbs that, you know, as much as possible so that the birthing person doesn't have to deal with that. They can just focus on what they're doing. I've definitely experienced like random things that don't really make sense in terms of the ways that black women are interacted with, in terms of the way that we're infantilized in some ways or like condescended, like condescension that comes from people not really honoring or wanting to hold the information that you have is valid because they have an idea of what it is that your birth in your body is supposed to be doing what it's supposed to look like. So I think there's definitely always, from my side anyway, I have to kind of prepare for that a little bit, kind of like do a little protection ritual, be like, yeah, I'm ready, you know, whatever comes, <laughs> I'm here for you. Yeah, it's a tough line to toe. I think I kind of err on the side of like, being best friends with the midwives so they're just like oh wow this person's just here to help us this is so nice but they don't really know that i'm <laughs> i'm taking notes I'm like Can you see all these weird things you're doing i'm smiling in your face but it's okay continue
4: <laughs> oh i love for that i think you're so right as well that it's like i think when we talk about medical racism and you know like just black women and black people existing in the healthcare system people have this idea that it's going to be, you know, this really overt thing of like, you're black, so you're strong. So we're not going to give you any medication. And it's like going to be this explicit named thing, but actually it is so much more subconscious and imperceptible than that. And I guess I wanted to move on to, I guess, talk about you as a parent um, yourself. And I guess I was curious to ask how you feel like, you know, becoming a parent and, I guess, like starting your own family kind of shaped and altered the paths that you then took afterwards or the practices that you were involved in? So, ah, such an interesting question because I guess
3: I also don't get to talk about this a lot. I was a young parent, so I got pregnant at 19 and I had my little one at 20. So I was like at uni whilst I got pregnant and I was having to make some big decisions like, are you having an abortion? Are you having a baby? Like, are you staying at uni? What's going on? I was also in like a very abusive relationship as well, so I was navigating like quite a few combinations of things, trying to find my own kind of voice and independence, whilst also then having decided, okay, fine, you're going to have this baby, and then being like, what does that mean for your university experience? Like, where are all your feminist friends now? (laughs) And so, I think that decision, to be honest, was one of the most empowering decisions I've made in my life because. The journey into motherhood, especially as somebody who doesn't necessarily kind of identify within the gender binary, has been very, very interesting. It's helped me to find my voice in ways that I didn't realize I had, as well as given me strength to be able to advocate for myself and for my child. And I don't know, inadvertently, that has meant that I'm also more able to advocate for other people. Finding my family has been a very interesting journey too, because I would say like I have kind of an alternative family model where a few of my partners are also parents to Gabby and like really close friends who one is Gabby's godparent and other close friends who are like yeah you know we're interested in you know being committed to this child like for the rest of their life what does that mean it's like yay let's have a family group chat <laughs> oh, and in doing that it's like yeah we've just that's been learning how to parent together getting it right getting it wrong like sharing frustrations and fears and fear being a really big one when you're trying to raise an autonomous child who is the one who's essentially leading the way in terms of how they are being cared for. I have this kind of fear that am I doing it right? Like is this okay? Like who am I going to go to? Like what book can I read to tell me how to raise a child who <laughs> is also figuring out how to be in the life of a black person in the UK. I don't know, it's it's definitely interesting. It's a journey. I feel really lucky to be on it with my little one, because they're just something special. And I'm sure everyone says that about their children, but it's probably true. I'm always really interested in alternative
2: families and queer parenting and looking at another way of raising children. What are you hoping to pass on or leave behind for your child?
3: Oh, I think I'm hoping to leave them More freedom than I ever had access to. I think freedom of language, freedom of expression, like freedom inside of their autonomy to decide how they want to move through and navigate the world. I'm hoping to leave them a little bit more financial stability than I had access to, as well as financial language, because I think as Black people, that's not really something that we spend enough time you know, teaching our children and then most of us have to learn it as adults and it's a little bit more complicated when you just don't already kind of have access to the language. I'm hoping to leave them all of my spiritual knowledge, <laughs> all of that's been passed on to me by my ancestors before and yeah, I guess whatever they're interested in, I'm here for just giving it all to them. I'm like,
4: take it, take whatever you
3: want, <laughs> you
4: can have it. <laughs> That's so beautiful. And I think it's time to get into your extract. Um, So could you give us a little bit of context to it and then read it out for us?
3: Okay, so this was written in July 2011, which is 10 years ago. How old would I have been? I would have been 18 in my first year of uni or like, yeah, just moving into getting ready to kind of be in there a little bit. I was at the University of Westminster studying human and medical science. And I think the preparation for being at uni meant that I had like really neglected my self-care in terms of creative writing or just writing to express or writing to share. And that was something that was really, really therapeutic for me from the age of 13 to the age of 17. And so there was like a whole year where I just didn't write. So somebody bought me this book and I was just like, okay, I'm going to just do something. Let me just see what comes out because it's been a long time. I don't even know what I'm doing. And yeah, the, the extract is called Writing Something and I'll just read it out. Let me pick up my book and write something. No plans, no drafts, just writing. Emotions alighting from the roller coaster that they have unwillingly been stuck on for what seems like an eternity. Relief coursing through your every vein as all the pent-up nothingness is released. An unsurety of epic proportions cycling through my curious bones. No looking back, no corrections, no regret. I know not what I write, but I know that is simply what I feel. And this writing, I do it to help me heal. Well, I guess this is something and I have written it. Bye. (laughs) Thank you for reading
2: that. What was the kind of thought process and inspiration behind writing that?
3: I think it generally was just, I think, a bit of desperation, to be honest. I think that year of forgetting to write had just, like, brought everything to a surface. And it it made me, I was numb. Like, I was numb for a while. And there was a lot going on, like, in my kind of final year of college and then into my first year of uni. And there was no space or time to really, I wasn't caring for myself as much as I should have been and i think even at that age my body was somehow aware of this and it felt like it needed correction and even reading it back it just feels like that's probably where it came from it came from a place of being like desperately wanting to release something from my body it's kind of like you know when you have those generators i don't know if you live in like a country where (laughs) you have to use generators and sometimes you have to like crank it a little bit you know like you draw it out and then it starts to go and the engine starts moving I think this was supposed to be some sort of activation to kind of remind me that you can write. You don't have to kind of plan it or organize it as soon as your body feels it. Just allow yourself to do it and see what comes through in those moments because that's probably some of the most honest writing that you're going to do, right? When you're not thinking about what it's looking like or how you're going to edit it or if anybody else is going to see it and you're just doing it for yourself. Yeah, and I think the thing that stuck with me the most was like, being 18 and still thinking about and knowing that writing is something that I do for my healing. And now at 28, still very much agreeing with this sentiment of like writing as a healing practice. Yeah, it's really interesting. This Mother's Day,
1: celebrate the extraordinary women in your life with a heartfelt gift from Blue Nile. Whether it's for your mom, a mother figure, or yourself as a mom, find that perfect piece to express your love and appreciation.
4: Yeah, I mean, you just answered my next question, which was going to be about, I guess, like, I think you've really touched on one of, like, writing's greatest powers in terms of how it is used to process people's emotions. And perhaps one that people... I think if you're a writer, it can be easy to almost forget that side of it in terms of, like, the writing for internal versus writing for external. So I was curious to hear, like, have you kept up that practice of doing it for the internal? And, like, also, how is it related to you know, the ways in which you write for the world outside you as well?
3: Mm, Yeah, I definitely have. I still do the thing of as soon as I feel it in my body, just kind of writing it out. I think it's also helped my general writing practice, writing songs, writing stories, writing essays, writing poems, feels a lot easier when there's a freedom in your writing because you've given yourself that through just doing it for yourself and not for anyone else, you know, allowing that pressure to fade away. And I think I sometimes will channel that energy of freedom into my more like creative work. So I do think it's important to just spend, even if it's a little bit of time as a writer, just doing it for yourself, doing it for no one else. It's not for an audience. It's just kind of allowing yourself to be free to express, to release. I think it's very, very important, especially for people who are writers. But I think everyone should write, you know. I try to encourage my little one. We homeschool now. We've been homeschooling since the beginning of the pandemic. And we have, like, journaling in the timetable. And they're very reluctant to do it. So I bought them their own little book. And sometimes I see them in in the corner just, like, writing away, you know, like when nobody's watching. I'm like, great, yeah, very good.
4: (laughs) I don't need to know what's in there, but I'm very happy for you. (laughs) Oh, that's, yeah. Sorry, Nai. before you ask a question, I was just going to say we always talk about it on this podcast. Like, Nai, I think you were a journaler, right? Like, I was that person who would start, like, buy a new book, like, this is the time, we're going to do this regularly, and then I would just give up every single time. And it honestly haunts me to this day that I didn't journal as a kid because I wish I could, like, look back at what I was thinking about and, like, the things that were important to me growing up. And, like, I feel like it firms up so much of, like, your identity when you have it expressed somewhere and you can kind of, like, refer back to it and just, like, give it life. Yeah, I'm a massive journaler. I've
2: been doing it since I was 11. But mainly because I have a terrible memory and it's, like, the only way I can, like, archive myself. <laughs> but, yeah, I totally agree with what you're saying about kind of, like, your passion and the thing that you love. I don't know, sometimes it kind of dies because of academia and formalised education and then you just put it away I used to love to draw and then literally basically got bullied by my art teacher and I just never picked up a pencil for years. And then you have to like relearn to do stuff for yourself. And because of the love of it, not because you're making money out of it or because you've been commissioned, it's very hard as a a writer to do that. What tips would you have for someone who's in that kind of place and is struggling to take that first step and just write for themselves again?
3: I think just exploring free writing, even when I do like workshops or like healing spaces, it's one of the tools that I use a lot because it, there's no pressure and it's also very accessible, you know, just get your pen and paper, set a timer or get your laptop or get your dictaphone, however it feels most you know, accessible to you and decide on how long you're going to do it for. I usually go for three minutes and you put the pen to paper, and you don't stop until the timer goes off, it doesn't matter what comes out, you're just allowing yourself to write, and you just keep going, just keep going. And if you're doing it by recording, you do the same thing. If you're typing, it's the same thing. And you'll be very, very interested to see the kinds of things that come out when you don't put pressure on yourself, or even when you do, because sometimes the timing gets a bit stressful, right? Where you're just like, oh my God, what the fuck is going on? It's going to stop now. Ah, I think free writing is a very, very good way of just like, getting yourself back into a place of writing for yourself because it's no pressure because it's not something that you're showing to anyone but it's a pressure in a way where it's just kind of like encouraging you to pull something out of yourself that you might not have given time to you know in a previous space because of work or because of responsibilities or
4: anything else like this so I think my biggest advice would be to experiment with free writing Honestly, I'm the biggest culprit of not writing things because I'm scared of, like, not having a plan or it not being good and then me having to, like, look at it. And you said timer and my heart literally started beating. <laughs> <laughs> I was like, oh, my God, what? And then I had to just put the... And then, like, what if it's just got, like, rubbish, you know? <laughs> but I think that's part of the problem. That's why you do it, I guess, which is super interesting. And then I wanted to talk a bit about, you talk about, I guess, your curious bones in the extract. And also, can I just say, like, for someone who I assume was, you know, writing off no script, you know, it's such a well-written and, like, beautiful piece of writing. Again, adds more pressure because I know mine would be actual garbage. (laughs) Please take that back. I don't agree (laughs) at all. But you do talk about your curious bones and I guess we've alluded to it in the earlier sections, but I wanted to hear a little bit more about how you think that curiosity has kind of like formed or helped to inform how you navigate life today. Mm. Broad question. I think that spirit or that energy
3: has helped me to find grounding, actually, because trying to find answers was one of the biggest things that I was see. of as a child like I grew up in a family that was very much in the church you know my granddad had churches all around Lagos and different parts of Nigeria so yeah I'd be one of those children who would be looking after the other children in church or like one of those children who's like in the choir be in the youth choir be in the adults choir be like going with my granddad to go sing in random places (laughs) and all the time just being very confused by the bible like this doesn't even make sense like could somebody just answer my questions like grandpa where did these human beings come from all of a sudden they just appeared in the bible (laughs) and sometimes people wouldn't have answers to these questions and I think having that from a young age like being like okay cool so You don't know what you're doing. Like, you don't know what's happening. That's okay. You know, it's good to know because then within my curiosity, I'm able to find answers in the silence of like, okay, there's a bit of confidence in me to know that whatever I decide to do is all right because y'all don't even know what you're doing. (laughs) Y'all think you have answers in some ways, but you also don't in others. So I really am grateful to my curiosity for like giving me the grounding of not being desperate to find answers to things that aren't tangible, because then that also informed my spiritual practice as well and the ways that I was able to engage with my ancestral work, I don't know, Orisha work, and like kind of understanding what that meant for me on like a personal level. And I think I am still a very curious person. I'm always asking questions and people are like, why are you asking questions when you have more answers than me? I'm like, "Mm mm-mm, I don't know anything. My own idea of this world is that I'm always learning, you know, and I want you to teach me. I will teach you what I have access to. But, like, let's just always be in conversation. Like, let's always, like, activate each other's curiosities and see, you know, where that leads and what we can find on this journey. Yeah, my curious bones are still here.
4: <laughs> I love that.
2: Wanted to quickly ask about your ancestral practices and what they look like. So I was quite intrigued.
3: So... I guess from a very young age, I've been kind of in communion with the spirit world, I think is the best way of putting it. Like, I learned how to do hair from, like, this little spirit doll that appeared in my room, which is a story for another day. But from then on, I knew there were things that I had access to that maybe my parents didn't. Because sometimes I'd be like, oh, did you guys see this thing? And they'd be like... Talking about. (laughs) And so I stopped talking about it with other people and started being more internal about exploring and engaging with that myself. A huge, huge part of that was my grandma, who kind of just held space for me to understand what it was like to dream read, like to understand people from the perspective of their dreams, and also taught me really strongly the power of prayer, like whatever that looked like for you being something that's very, very important and very necessary to like meditate on and to also like actually used to kind of center your own personal power in a way that you can then kind of use to hold space for other people in the world and in terms of my ancestral practice I speak with quite a few of my ancestors like through altars through writing through divination and I'm also I guess in a lot of different ways incorporating the I don't know if the spirit the spiritual practice of Orisha work which kind of Encourages you to start from your head, start from honoring your head as the first thing that is guiding you through the world. And yeah, that's mostly what my spiritual practice involves. I do like readings, like, you know, I I can see kind of things from people when I meet them. And sometimes I get messages from people, random strangers I don't even know. I have to be like, hey, so I just have to quickly tell you this thing, (laughs) which has been an interesting journey in confidence because I definitely remember different experiences of like being really scared to do that like being scared to just go up to someone and be like hey you know this thing came through for you I don't know if you're interested but here you go and it's empowering to be able to push through your fear a little bit and just engage in something that you don't have any like kind of tangible access to outside of just what's coming out of your mouth for other people And it's been a very, very beautiful place of healing for me in terms of like my mental health, especially as a black, queer, non-binary, trans person who I would say I don't have access to mental health support in a lot of the ways that I need. So I've had to find that on my own. And doing that through spirit work has been really, really fulfilling, like really amazing and really helped me find a lot of healing in ways that I don't know if I'd be able to find from a psychiatrist or psychologist or a counsellor. Not that therapy isn't important. I think it's very, very, very beautiful and necessary if you have access to somebody who's able to kind of hold that space for you in the ways that you need. But in my 28 years, I haven't found that yet. So (laughs) I'm very grateful that I have other alternative methods of healing. And yeah, I think spiritual work is very important for us as Black people to engage in on an individual level, You know, to find ways of doing it that feel good for us if that's something that you're interested in. And to do that in
4: community, if you have space or time for that. I think that's that's amazing. And it made me curious as well to hear more about, I guess, like a few of the things you've talked about today in terms of, you know, that curiosity that kind of questioned, I think, if I can speak as an African to a fellow African, in terms of kind of questioning some of those hierarchies or some of those traditions that we are kind of. Told to accept as facts and I think even in terms of how you live your life and kind of there's a p- pattern of questioning and of not disrupting but dismantling some of those structures and I guess I was curious to hear more about your journey with like how the people around you have responded to the kind of conspiring way in which you've kind of questioned and like reformed and created a space for yourself and if that was an easy journey or if it was hard with you know parents and elders and all of that sort of stuff? It's been so interesting.
3: (laughs) It's been a huge journey, especially as somebody who's like from a very Christian family. There was a point a few years ago where I did like, it was kind of like a mini documentary about being a quote unquote black witch. I did that at a time when I was really, really frustrated by like what the image of like spiritual work was, especially in the UK, like how whitewashed it was. And I was like, this doesn't make any sense to me. I don't understand why black and brown people are not the ones who are leading the charge when it comes to this, making money off it, being the ones who are representative of it. It's like weird whitewashed versions of spiritual practices that are indigenous to other people's land. And it was very, very uncomfortable. So I felt really happy to kind of take advantage of this opportunity to talk about my practice and talk about the ways that it kind of, yeah, works with my community. But I didn't think about the fact that people were going to share this article or people were going to share these videos and somehow it was going to get to my granddad. (laughs) And I think it definitely has changed. It changed our relationship in that, It was very scary. Like I was scared because I was like, I don't know what the repercussions of this are. My family is very important to me. I come from a very big family. Like I love that I have access to my cousins and that they have access to me and that I can support them wherever we are in the world. And I was really scared that maybe my cousins wouldn't be able to talk to me anymore because maybe my uncles and aunts would see these videos and be like, "Mm -mm -mm -mm. you can't go near this person. Don't talk to them. But it just brought up more questions. I think they just had lots of questions for me. And I had to just be very grounded in my... <laughs> I'm no longer kind of identifying as a Christian, especially going from somebody who was doing, like, gospel concerts in the UK and in Nigeria to <laughs> to be like, yeah, I'm a witch now, I'm a black witch. <laughs> it's always the ones doing the most. off. <laughs> But it's also, like, been very revealing because then I found out that two generations ago, my great-grandmother was a white witch in our village. And there's books out there with, like, lots of different information in it about things that my family had created which I'm looking forward to going to go get which will probably happen this Christmas but um fingers crossed and then also learning from my mother that oh yeah you know I know about some of these things that you're doing it's not really surprising to me like some of my family members were also practitioners in ways and I was just like wow so all these years you've just been doing your thing in secret and being scared and like just giving yourself stress when really you should have just been standing in your truth and being more honest with who you are so that other people could quickly accept you and I was like yeah I've been running away I've been running away from you all for a while I think of course there is still a little bit of judgment from some members of the family I think also I lost a few friends because they were just like what is that (laughs) which is fine I think it's very important to know who's who's about you and who isn't so you can move accordingly but I think it's also just taught me not to move from a place of fear to move from a place of honoring my own truth and being prepared for whatever the repercussions of that you know whatever they might be just giving me more freedom and giving me more space to be who I am so it's definitely been a very interesting journey (laughs) into like holding the spiritual space from like a more honest perspective yeah yeah
4: it's funny isn't it because obviously so much of it stems from our own history like you said and it comes from us but I guess in the process of Western influences and kind of colonialism, some of us might have adopted some of those beliefs about our own culture. And then it's kind of like trying to figure out ways to unearth and reintroduce these practices that are so historic. Super interesting. What advice would you give to, I guess, your younger self who's 18 when they're writing this 2011? Extracts and kind of getting back into the practice of writing and expressing themselves freely, what advice would you give to them?
3: Well, I would tell them to not be scared. i will tell them to be grounded in their truth and to know that that's okay, to be honest with themselves so they can be honest with other people around them. I think I tell them to continue writing to never stop again, to just keep going with it even if it's just for themselves. And I tell them to share their practices with the people who they care about and, yeah, not do things in secret. <laughs> yeah, I think that, that would be my biggest advice for them.
2: What would your younger self, that curious younger you, think about where you are
3: now? I think their mind would be blown because at that age, I had just accepted that, well, you're going to live for your parents. Like, you're going to go to university, you're going to study medicine, you're going to become a doctor, And you're going to just do that so that your parents can be happy. So if they were to see this version of me who three months to completing their degree was like, I'm out, I'm not doing this anymore. (laughs) They would be shocked. (laughs) They'd be so shocked. And then if they were to see that I'm now like creating work as an artist, like working within the community, engaging in spiritual practice, like being honest about not having a gender I think their mind would be blown. I think they'd be very happy to see that I had a child because they also love children. <laughs> but yeah, they would be shocked because I honestly, I don't think at that age I would have been able to conceptualize that I would be where I am today um, or that I would have given myself the freedom to just do what felt best for me because I was in a place where I really just wanted to make everyone else happy, even at the kind of to the detriment of myself. So,
4: wow, yeah, that's amazing, really, to reflect in that way. Incredible. Thank you so much for joining us. This has been such an enlightening and empowering conversation. It has. Thank you. Thank you so much for having me. It's really
3: been nice to reflect. It's been nice to chat to you as well. I really appreciate your time.
2: That was, yeah, a really great conversation.
4: I feel like I need to journal, <laughs> Yeah. Like, I'm just sick of it. I'm sick of not it's having... never too late. Not writing. I know. It's funny though, isn't it, that I call myself a writer and yet I only ever write very specific types of things. I think because I do still find it quite scary. But seeing Toby's extract and, like, I guess the power of, like, writing emotions, not just writing things that yeah. happen. You
2: should try the three-minute
4: yeah, task Toby was talking about. It's doable. <laughs> sweating. i'm sweating in theory (laughs) literally in theory i was like sweating as they
2: were were talking about it also i just love how they're just living in their truth and have built an alternative life for themselves and they're just so happy Mm -hmm. and it's really inspirational to be like this is my life i'm gonna live it for me the way i want to
4: when they were talking about i guess you know that younger version of themselves who might not have even conceived of living a life outside of the one that their parents wanted them to live. And you remember, like, being young and kind of feeling those pressures and literally not being able to see beyond, like, Mm. what's, like, prescribed for you, so... I
2: still feel them now.
4: (laughs) Literally, like, the pressures of everything, the pressures of, you know, that job role that you don't really want or, like, that, I don't know, just, like, this prescribed idea of life. Mm. And you can't see beyond it, but to imagine a world in which you, you know, you get beyond it and you are living... Your own truth to the most like authentic degree it's really heartwarming to think about fully. This has been an II Studios production. Thank you so much for listening. We really hope you enjoyed this episode. You can sign up to become a
2: member at ga-dem.com for access to exclusive discounts with our favorite brands and partners, early access to tickets for gaudem events, an advanced copy of our annual print issue and so much more.
4: Make sure you're following us on all major social media at Galdemzine for the latest independent news and culture or visit our online website, which is gal-dem.com.
2: Don't forget, if you loved this episode of Growing Up With Galdem, be sure to subscribe, rate and leave a review. We'll catch you on the next episode.
0: They're all about safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade.
1: If you're looking for plump lips that last, you need to know about Juvederm Lip Fillers.